This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So this is all sort of timed that, uh, well, this is the last episode of Deep Gold, and this will air uh, Thanksgiving this, this week. And once it airs, uh, there'll be a couple of extra episodes that come out, and we'll take about a week break. And then December 1st, we'll have a series running called Home for the Holidays, which is quite a few episodes for people. And... Uh, it's interesting that this fell like where this is ending on on Thanksgiving. I did put out several episodes kind of back to back to finish out the Deep Gold series for the year. But I wanted to point out, so our YouTube has apparently become a thing, meaning True Crime Excess episodes are now on YouTube. Um, I have disabled the comments on there because what happened with that is YouTube just brought all 210 episodes in at once. So it looks like, you know, this new content stream all became available on whatever day in November it published them. I think it was like November 17th or 18th. And people are already sending me notes telling me to be a better researcher, which I appreciate. Thank you for saying that. But I did disable the comments because of that. Because I don't, I think what people might miss there is that if I publish something in 2021 and something happened in 2023, maybe you should see if there's an update on that that new development before you rant at me. Yeah, I can see where that could go like so incredibly wrong. Yeah, and it wasn't so. The, just briefly on that, essentially what happened is YouTube Music absorbed Google Podcasts. And if you wanted to have your RSS feed go up there, it's completely separate from the rest of our analytics and the rest of what we do. But we had the right kind of podcast because we don't do ads. We don't have dynamic inserts or anything like that. We just have some of the brand ambassador stuff we've started doing at the end of the more recent episodes. It just sucked everything in at one time. Um, and I did have to approve it, and I did approve it so that, you know, people can have access to it there on YouTube Music or YouTube if they want it. Yeah, there's nothing I love more than somebody that would go to a channel that had 210 episodes just appear magically and then start talking junk about it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm not I, – you know, it was weird because I t- – <laughs> I took the extra step of making sure most of those earlier episodes have a date you can see in the title. And I Well, not to mention we don't go back and change stuff just because we are wrong about something or we find out new information about something. We will update like in a current episode, but we don't edit our old stuff. No, no, we don't. It's, it, there's too much there to edit. And it's it's all I can do. I've started the process of getting episode descriptions going. It's all I can do to do that. And I wanted to, so I, I kind of wanted to segue that 
into with a series like Deep Gold, there is a tremendous amount of work involved in audio that doesn't make it on the air. For instance, this started out, it was just going to be one episode. And I realized one of our goals, you and I, has always been that we're going to find the one thing or more things that aren't mentioned in terms of one of the things that we do is we're finding the things that aren't mentioned in these summaries. Uh, you have aptly named this headline skimming where people kind of catch a USA Today article or People Magazine article, and that's the extent that they digest that case. But more specifically, you and I are looking for things in the court documents and the legal papers that are often glossed over with a sentence or two explanation that never quite gets it right. So you do an incredible amount of reading of legal documents. Um, and I would say Deep Gold, I, I don't think it's the most we've ever read for a series. That's pretty I, close. I, 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 I certainly think if we counted what we've gone through in terms of repeating, you have read dozens of thousands of pages because this case sprawls. It sprawls and it duplicates and it replicates and it gets closed down and sent to a different jurisdiction and it repeats. It, it's insane. Yeah. And so if you go and, you know, uh, someone commented uh, that they had heard about this story on a, another podcast and I, I looked it up. I'm aware that that is out there and it, it's a good episode and it's 30 minutes long and it's basically reading a USA Today article. It's a very, it's, that's fine if that's what you're looking for. Well, no, yeah, sure. I mean, this is, it's a particular undertaking. It was fascinating to me because um, I realized the implications that came along with sort of skimming the headlines and the blurbs that we were seeing because this case had like a little bit of action uh, in, you know, in court, in federal court at the, I think it was at the beginning of June. And what's interesting is I thought for certain we would have a ruling on the motions that were heard. I, again, I believe it was in June. Of, if not June, it was May of 2023. And I thought by the time we recorded this episode to be released, uh, you know, approximately this time, uh, there would be a ruling that had been uh, an opinion that had been released. And there hasn't been. Correct. There's not a ruling. And we started this talking about the gold rush. And then we talked about a gentleman named H. Beatty Chadwick in one of the first episodes here. The reason that we talked about H. Beatty Chadwick is, you know, kind of a weird reason. It's because Tommy Thompson has been in jail for what will end up being eight years. And more longer. It'll be yeah. It it could it could keep going, and we had never seen that. And I remember growing up in a time where there were certain movies and television shows, even cartoons, about treasure hunting 
or ocean exploration or finding shipwrecks and finding gold. I mean, the Titanic, the movie about the Titanic was one of the biggest movies of all time. And ultimately, uh, while that told a very dramatic story, that's one of the most famous shipwrecks in the world that is spawning that movie. The Titanic. Right. Right, and that happened like mid-90s, right? The movie, yes. Right, like, and it was huge. Yeah. Huge everywhere. In the theaters, it had a, you know, like number one song forever and like all kinds of stuff. So what I want to do now is I want to pick up where we left off in the last episode, which is Tommy Thompson starting to get into it with his investors. And I want to carry you through present day, 2023, where people can kind of understand a, a pretty deep dive into what's happened to him, but in a digestible form. And what I've noticed about when Tommy does make the mainstream media, it is almost tabloid-like, and it is a, a lot of his goings-on for 30 years are glossed over in a couple of paragraphs. And I think that people should hear this story because, again, the U.S. court system, and this is not even the criminal justice system for the most part, but it does get there, is one of the scariest places on earth. Now, that's not to say that Tommy's had all bad luck along the way. Some rulings have gone in his favor. In 2000, Tommy Thompson was able to sell off his companies, meaning Columbus American Discovery Group and Recovery Limited, portions and percentages of the gold salvages to a company called the California Gold Group. So they get an influx of cash in 2000 for around $52 million. And that's really, when I say they, it's really just Tommy, but, you know, he is, he's trying to keep things going and he's trying to keep the legal bills paid. There's several things he's trying to do. One of the problems there is that the investors don't get any of that money. So Tommy stays a little frozen for a while. He avoids having this confrontation with the investors, but that can't go on forever. And in 2001, documents are drawn up where... 25% of profits from any future sales of gold are going to be the, like, that's going to be the way that he takes care of distributing some of this, not just in the investors, there's crew people involved as well. But after that, Tommy really stops talking to anyone. Now, the investor partners and most of the people that worked with and for Tommy didn't even know that he had negotiated this $52 million sale until news of the sale kind of got out. In 2004 and in 2005, the investors began to legally attack Tommy to make him pony up some money. In that first group of investors that, 
that kind of get to court first are a guy named John Wolf and a guy named Don Fanta. And these are from the original investment group for a Columbus America Discovery Group. Now, the first pack of investors, they start asking for financial documentation of everything that Tommy has done. And Tommy doesn't want to share this information. When he does this, this results in essentially confrontations in front of a judge. They file a lawsuit in Franklin County Court of Common Pleas representing a large group of the investors, large-ish group, against Tommy, against all of his companies. And they start to whittle away into like the board of directors for some of the companies and sue them as well. In 2005, when this is happening, Tommy's crew, the people that were on the boat with him, they then file suit against him for claims of the their percentages of what has been recovered. And the way you described this in one of the other episodes, these are very small fractions that he had given people in order to keep them working with him. Yes, they're very small fractions of a percent. Don Fanta files a similar suit to John Wolf's suit. And ultimately, the courts decide that the salvage crew suit is very similar to that as well, because they're all sort of going after the same pot of money. They consolidate these cases together and they create this, I I think Chris Ryan in his article described it as a mammoth case. And that is accurate. It, It instantly generates a thousand docket entries of everything they had done so far between the three suits. And then it continues to generate another thousand docket uh, entries. And when the judges get a hold of it in 2006, they're able to look at it and it doesn't, when you go to court, most of the time, the idea is when you have a neutral third party, you're shedding some sunlight on stuff and you can see what's happening. That's not what happened in this case. It got, Worse. In 2006, a U.S. District Court judge named Edmund Sargas, he rules for Jonathan Wolf by ordering Tommy Thompson and the four people from the board of directors to submit an inventory that would account for everything that, that had happened with the money that had been spent by the investors and the money that had come in and gone out from the sale of the gold. What Thompson turns into them, what Tommy turns into them here, is an inventory of the gold sold to the California Gold Group, which when they start drilling down on it, is only a fraction of the amount that had been salvaged back in 1988. This was not enough for the first group of investors suing behind Wolf. And Judge Sargas couldn't figure it out. He's been a long time, um, almost three years, trying to figure out what exactly was happening here. And he ends up demanding that Tommy produce anything that even resembled an inventory of all the recovered gold. Include, he was asking for scale sheets. He was asking for uh, way sheets. He wanted anything. And Tommy's attorney comes back 
And he responds and says that they had searched for the inventories and they had produced the one and only inventory that any of the companies had. And that was the inventory relating to the sale of the California Gold Marketing Group. Basically, they were saying, that's all we have and you already have it. Judge Sargas finds Tommy and the board of directors are in contempt in 2009. He cites their lack of document production, their continual delays with the court and with the attempts at discovery. And he basically says what should have taken less than 90 days, 180 days maximum, has now taken multiple years. He sets a trial for 2012. And Tommy, at this point in time, becomes basically unreachable. 2009 to 2012, Tommy has an assistant that is helping him named Allison. As of August 2012, after months, Tommy's not responding. He's not producing the documents. And at this point, his lawyers don't even know where he is. Tommy gets one last order from Judge Sargas. And that order basically says, show up, show us what you did with the gold, or I'm going to issue a warrant for your arrest. And on August 13th, 2012, when that deadline hit, Tommy Thompson did not appear in Judge Sargas's court. Judge Sargas ordered him to be arrested. He put the U.S. Marshals out to track him down, and he held him in contempt of court. So overnight in 2012, Tommy Thompson became a federal fugitive, not for any reason other than not complying with the court's orders. The U.S. Marshals are pretty well known for doing a lot of amazing things, wouldn't you say? I mean, sure. They're in charge of witness protection. Frequently, you will see that they are attached to joint task force uh, related to violent fugitives across the country. One of their main goals is to hunt down people who don't want to be hunted down. And it takes the U.S. Marshals three years to find Tommy Thompson. It's not quite three years, but it's it, on paper, it looks like three years, the way the court writes it out. In January of 2015, Tommy and Allison, the assistant who is also sometimes uh, reported as being his girlfriend, are found living at the Hilton Hotel in West Boca Raton, Florida. They had been staying at this same Hilton Hotel for the better part of a year, they use fake names. They paid for the room in cash. And they even make a big deal out of the fact that How to Be Invisible is one of the books they find that the two have. Um, they were using taxis and buses. They didn't have cars registered to their name. Um, they had a massive amount of cash. They had bank accounts under a false name that had at least a half a million dollars in it. Uh, Tommy and Allison had a couple of dozen burner cell phones or prepaid cell phones between them. And before that, they had been living in a multi-million dollar mansion in Vero Beach. And they had been paying the rent there in 
$100 bills that was later described as moldy, or and then I also heard the description of sweaty. The bottom line is they gave off all the appearances of having buried a lot of cash and sort of being uh, on the run and hiding from producing this inventory. I wanted to ask you here, in everything you've read, do you think at this point in time, these inventories are being hidden because of something These inventories don't exist. That's what I think. That's what I was specifically going to ask you. They've never existed. They just didn't do it, right? They didn't do it. It's the, the only thing that we know with some certainty is um, about the negotiation that took place with um, the California Gold Company, $52 million. They purchased the gold. Yes. Uh, they purchased a lot and a, hmm, a group of gold. And uh, it's what sort of instigated, like, hey, that purchase took place. Where's our cut? That's how that, that started. We talked about earlier how, like, Tommy had a way of when he, before he made his monumental discovery of the sunken treasure, people were investing in him. He had his pitch, and at the end of the day, they were like, you know, this may not go anywhere, but by golly, I'm going to give this guy a chance, right? Yes. And that carries over because... From the time that he came back to shore, having found the gold with what he initially had retrieved in the salvaging process through an initial ruling and then several appeals and all this other stuff, he had managed to talk his investors and their attorneys into not taking any legal action against him. Until 2000, I believe 2005 is when an initial suit was filed. Yeah, like they started, I think they, they, I think they threatened it in 2004 and they start putting together documents and trying to figure out how to do it. But you're right, 2005 is when they actually start suing. Tommy. And so this is from a guy who was able to, to talk people. Some of these people had huge undress. One of the sort of, touchy points of this whole situation is we never get a complete figure of what a percentage represents. Correct. Correct. And so it's hard to say on some of these investors, it's hard to say like what they're fighting for. And now granted some of the investors who were looking for, you know, a return from money they put up and, and, you know, they weren't relying on some sort of sweat equity bargain that they had made. You know, there were specific amounts of money that they expected to get in return and they hadn't gotten that. Right. Right. And so, but so we've got this guy who, for whatever reason, he's been able to talk people into giving him all this money He then did exactly what he said he was going to do with the money. He he went and got, he he found the ship and he built a machine and he retrieved gold. And then he gets at least $52 million 
in exchange for part of a haul from the ship. Correct. And that happens in, what was it, early 2000? Yes. Sometime, okay, and th- that's when everybody's like, well, wait a second. We're supposed to know about this kind of stuff. And we didn't know you were going to sell this because, like you mentioned, the contracts that they signed in the non-disclosures, there's ambiguity in the language as to what exactly they were owed. Like, was it net? Was it gross? Like, what kind of implications does the wording have? Because the wording is very specific. And it, it seemed to me that he was attempting to put off owing anything when he was like 25% of future yields or sales or whatever he said. Correct. Because, and so I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why he did what he did to his like initial group of investors. Another thing that happened was he immediately incorporated a different company that basically it was like, you know, reset, start over again. <laughs> right. And, and, and then he, but you know, that doesn't do anything like as far as the other company still existed. Right. But he, he, he made some weird attempts to do stuff and I couldn't figure out what he was doing, but I, I really have a very, very hard time understanding a guy who, you know, could, could convince all these people to give him all this money and then have money in hand and not pay his investors back. Right. Do you have any idea why? No, I, I have, I have tried to figure out a couple of angles here so he does some stuff that when I look at it, he mints these coins. And the coins that he mints are sort of commemorative gold coins. And that becomes one of the biggest sticking points with the different federal judges. Because now we've moved on to a different federal judge in present day, a guy named Algernon Marbley. And he wants those coins and that becomes his sticking point. But also Tommy's take on this is that he put it all into what's known as a Belizean trust, which is its own level of insanity. So because of those things and because of how all this went down, and by the way, the U S marshals aren't the one that find him. It's a handyman from that mansion they had been renting in Vero Beach. He turns them in. The marshals start looking down, and somebody from the Hilton finally like realizes who the creepy guy with the beard is. They and the Hilton people turn them in. Well, this isn't exactly like this was a failure to appear warrant bench warrant for a civil case. Correct. Yeah, this, this is, is not <laughs> high like top ten most wanted criminal fugitives but but they put billboards up they did the whole thing and i totally agree with you here's what i think i think everything tommy thompson does after about 2004 he's just lost his mind he is well i think he's reacting out of fear and i i actually think that this whole scenario has made him a little crazy 
Well, and that's why I felt like it was important to go all, because the most shocking thing about all this for me was the 39 lawsuits that were waiting for him. Yeah. The minute that happens, I actually think that can break your mind, no matter how smart and logical a person you are. If 39 lawsuits is going to kill you. I mean, it's just too much to fathom, right? It really yeah. is. And I, you can kind of tell if you, and I would not suggest anybody follow the courses of the different cases that this particular situation produces, right? Because it's like, you've got a criminal case, right? United States versus Thompson, which that starts with the failure to appear, right? But before that, you've got, civil cases starting in 1987 and it is very clear that the damage was done very early on as far as his participation in the legal side of this stuff yeah it, you know, it takes a special kind of person to come up with an idea that, like, yielded this kind of result. Because he was responsible for a lot of the technology in the late 80s that he used to retrieve this stuff. And that brain is hiding, in turn, from, like, the fallout of it. Right. As far as how everybody has just completely turned on him in a way. Now, I say that because I did feel like the I felt like it was absolutely insane for those initial lawsuits when he got back. Right. Oh, I agree with you. The gall, like the gall in, in that happening, it was crazy. But then it switches gears, and I can't understand why he would have not been forthright with his investors if he had been of sound mind, right? Because he, bro he broke every single tie. I think his assistant was literally the only person that he had contact with the one who was with him when he because she was arrested as well yeah. yeah allison gets arrested she basically is moving these coins and some of the money around from about 2010 right up to january 2015 when they get arrested and she's literally the only one that's left right and so he like burnt so many things down he could not maintain his connections with people like anybody and I wish like I would really I would love to hear what he has to say about all this um because you don't go from being a person who can talk somebody into investing in you to being a person who like can convince you like you know don't sue me I'm going to make this right which is what he sort of did up until you know the early 2000s from like the mid 90s and then he just is like okay you know I'm gonna like not even deal with any of this right and he literally doesn't and that's you know he the reason that he is in jail to begin with is because a judge said you've got to come and appear for the civil court case. 
and he didn't. And the plaintiffs in that case pushed and the judge said, okay, I'm scheduling this show. I, I, I think it was a show calls hearing. I, and I want you to, you've got to be here. They get him served. He doesn't show up. And that's where the failure to appear bench warrant gets issued. And so he literally was just running away from everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what happens from the legal front is in April 2015, Tommy pleads guilty to failing to appear in court in 2012. He gets two years in prison. He gets fined $250,000. But then they stay his criminal sentence, which is unusual. Staying his criminal sentence means that until Tommy answers for the contempt charge, he is getting zero credit for the time that he is in prison. Well, at, we should say, though, at this point, the contempt the civil contempt charge doesn't come into play until after part of his plea arrangement is that he is going to participate in giving information that's asked of him in the civil. Yeah, and, and, and there's, two, there's two parts to that. So the, the plea deal requires him to answer questions in closed-door sessions with lawyers about the whereabouts of the coin, the, these coins that I was talking about. But also, he has to assist in providing the other documentation for the rest of the civil case. And this is, so this all happens in 2015, April, 2015, he pleads guilty. And then that plea deal had these contingencies on it. Whereas in December of 2015, Algernon uh, Marbley, he finds that Thompson is in contempt of court. Again, like on top of the failure to appear, he finds that he is still in contempt of court and he's not participating in the way that he had agreed to participate in this arrangement. So he hits him with indefinite jail and to pay a thousand dollar a day fine as of December 15th, 2015 going forward. And, and that's on top of the $250,000 that he's already been fined. Now, as of today, Tommy has come into court. Okay. So a couple of big things have happened. One, Tommy has come into court about 30 times. He it, ultimately, the civil case was sort of parceled out and decided against him. His original investors were awarded a pretty big chunk of money. I believe it's around $19 million. They were awarded what they were promised to begin with, plus interest. Right. Is what ended up happening. Right. So... Now, and I don't, I know you have read them all, but I don't know how to explain these testimony. So depending on which piece of testimony a, a, a journalist picks up or, or a, a person who wants to read it picks up, Tommy has a completely different story every time. He's saying that, go ahead. Well, I'm not entirely sure he has any story at all. That's, that's what I was going to kind of say. It, it, the way that it's written about him, it's like there's a new story each time. It's about a Belizean trust or this mystery ailment or uh, – and 
there's some there are some legitimate medical issues that are never really addressed. But the bottom line is, it seems that uh, I've also heard that his memory is faltering or his mind is gone. But the bottom line is, at the end of all of this, where we're sitting right now, if we look back on it, I don't think Tommy has ever said anything other than I'm not really participating in this. Um, that could be true. Uh, I he he's one of those. Uh, people who he says he says exactly what he means and he means exactly what he says when you get and you can see it throughout all this anytime there's an exhibit that's created by him at some point in the 80s that you know one of the people that are now bringing action against him in court um present you can tell this is a guy who plays with semantics very well. I can't help but wonder exactly, like like you were saying, it's possible that that is all that he has said. Um, I know that he took, he, he has testified at his own motions hearings. Right. To be uh, released. And this is with regard to... He's being held on civil contempt charges, okay? And it has to do with him not fulfilling the plea arrangement he made when he pled guilty to his failure to appear charge that he was initially picked up on to begin with. He has since, um, he, he can't keep an attorney, yeah. yeah, yeah. The attorneys that are appearing at this point—I don't know if you've like kind of checked them out. I know you've read a lot of this testimony and you've seen a lot of this. It gets very meandering very quickly. Uh, a lot of what is going on has to literally be uh, uh, wrangled to get like even cohesive testimony out well, of what's happening. It is people, you know, leaving the case, and then it attorneys being brought on right before a hearing because they're the only one who will show up apologizing to the judge because they have no idea what's going on that's sort of how it's played out so you've got somebody that will make an appearance and then they're gone and they nothing gets accomplished right in the meantime i know that lately it seems like maybe after 2020 Tommy was filing motions on his own behalf, trying to get out of, he wanted to be released from the civil contempt charges because until that ends, he has not served his term for the failure to appear, which is the actual criminal charge that he faced and took the plea arrangement for. His reasoning in those motions, from what I've read, is that he simply cannot assist the court with what they're asking. That is the gist of it. It meanders all over the page, but ultimately for whatever reason, he can't help them. This last round in 2023, there was an interesting thing. I think you read it as well. This is where the Belizean trust comes up. The idea is if Tommy is under duress, whoever has this one portion of his coins in the Belizean trust with the trustee, Um, as long as Tommy's under duress and being required to answer questions of its location, apparently there might be a situation where 
they can't tell him. I don't know how you read that legally speaking. It has nothing to do with U.S. law, so I was a little confused by it. It doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with U.S. law. Um, it there's absolutely nothing a court can a U.S. court. So you know a judge. Uh, there's not a single piece of paper on earth that a judge here with jurisdiction over Tommy's current case as he sits in jail, they could not write an order that would be enforceable upon anybody. Yeah. And it seems to be a power of attorney voids the ability of the trustee to even talk to the quote. Power however, of however, yeah. that would get him out of jail. I, yeah. So that's the other thing I started looking at here is what gets him out of jail. Tell me what you're thinking there. He has to, so there's this pivotal moment in, that I read in a transcript where he, he answers a question. I believe the judge is asking him the question and he, it's so blatantly no that it flies in the face of like everything that has come up because if like, let's say for example, he answered, yes, I will give you this power of attorney. Yes, you can go and you can do whatever. So like, let's say he does his part in all of that. He signs it. He does whatever they ask. And they go and they try to enforce this and they're unable to, right? Then he has done his part. Right. Okay. The problem is you can see it, especially in the transcripts, because that's, you know, him talking. And when he's asked questions, he's clearly not cooperating, right? And and he's being so blatantly obvious that he's not cooperating, and it's almost like I felt like he didn't have legal representation for long enough that they could tell him, like, look, you've got to go along with what you said you were going to do. Okay. Now, there's a, there's a much bigger issue at play here that I feel like is relevant because it presents itself. And to me, that is this strange, coercive nature that was woven into a criminal plea agreement to coerce a civil litigant who is on the defense side in the civil case, right, to cooperate. And the punishment, or, well, I guess it's not really punishment, the result of him not cooperating, having agreed to it as terms of his criminal plea, it, it creates this bubble limbo, sort of, where... If he w- if this was straight up criminal contempt, he probably would have gotten out by now. Yes. Right? Yes. If I don't understand, and I honestly, I feel like it is lack of 
supportive legal representation because he's not entitled to an attorney uh, because he's being held in civil contempt. Okay. Right. Okay. And it's, and this is, this is a weird, it's like purgatory really, because he's being held just like he would be held if he had committed a crime and was in jail. Right. But he's being held on the civil contempt. He's not entitled to an attorney. And a deal was initially brokered that I feel like at this point in time should be withdrawn. Yeah, that's okay. So from the legal perspective, in my opinion, I think he actually has to go back and withdraw the initial guilty plea and let them sentence him to whatever they want to sentence him to for the failure to appear in the civil case. Because I promise you, it will not be eight years and he will get time served and walk away. Let's think about this, though. If he had not taken the plea agreement, okay, and he had sat for trial for the failure to appear charge, okay, and that had gone through bench or jury, however the trial played out, right? There is absolutely no way that he would be sentenced to sit in jail until he cooperated with the civil case, right? That's right. not part of our justice system. <laughs> well, they, they would never have come back together. He simply would have gone through the failure to appear trial. They could have made some requirements of him related to the civil case at the end of that, but they weren't enforceable in a way that he's sitting in a federal prison. This is not him sitting in jail. This is him sitting in, he's in Milan Correctional Institute. That's a federal prison. Right. And he's sitting there because a, a court has ordered him to cooperate with a civil case and he agreed to it. So that's the important part. So as part of the plea, he said, I will cooperate. Okay. And because he did that, that's why he's sitting in jail on a contempt charge. And I don't think that what is happening is kosher. And I think we need to think about how it would play out long term if the power of the the court's power of contempt could be held over to force cooperation in civil litigation yeah i well <laughs> what's interesting about all of this is i kind of understand the council problem at this point because if i had been hit with 39 lawsuits in 1988 or 1989, whatever, I I would not trust lawyers either. I would think lawyers would try to get my money. Nobody wants this case. And at this point in time, you have to keep in mind also, okay, contempt power for the court is actually, it it's a thing that we need to have because Correct. like beyond a judge being able to hold you in contempt, like what incentive is there to listen to a judge, right? Yeah, and not only that, okay, the end result of all this is I I think he is a – it's such a rare case with so many weird things surrounding it that 
it doesn't have a way for the court to deal with it sanely. Well, because as soon, so, okay, this is like, you know, the endless question when it comes to contempt, let's say that nothing changes and they let him out of the contempt, the civil contempt charge that's holding him in jail. Right. Well, okay. So what was the point of that? And what was it exactly that changed? If you have to, if when you're charged with civil contempt because you are not doing what a judge ordered and what he agreed to do in this case. Well, it's lost its coercive effect. Okay, but how can, like, if they can let you out now and nothing changes, like, what was the point? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, like, I follow what you're saying. You're basically saying that they've they've created their own Ouroboros here. You don't want to be the one to say, like, I messed up. I'm going to let you out now. It, it's not a good look. Okay. I understand that, but that's also not a legal argument. No, it's not. But the law is on the judge's side. Yes, the law is on the judge's side, but that doesn't mean that this makes any sense. Well, okay, but it does make sense. It's just that some smoozing on Tommy Thompson's part as far as like when the judge says, are you going to cooperate with this? He needs to say yes. Okay, not no. And I understand his position. I've heard it, or I guess I've read it over and over again in these transcripts. He feels like anything he does from where he sits at this moment to try and give people access to information about the Belizean Trust is going to backfire on him. He's got to put that out of his head, and he's got to give them whatever they ask for. And you know what? If it backfires, it backfires. That's if he wants to get out of jail. Okay. He can't maintain both positions because what he's saying when he's testifying, he's saying, I can't do this, that, or the other because there's all these stipulations in Belize when these things are set up that, like, if you're in distress, it makes it harder for you to get it back even if you're the trustee right yeah and he's got to let go of all those ideas right because it doesn't matter what happens to that money at this point if he wants to get out of jail now i feel like uh i am i'm i was really shocked when like august passed and there was no opinion than September. Now, like, I think the whole year is going to go without an opinion. And I think the problem is there's no precedent for this. Yep. That's, it's that unique. No matter but what the judge does, it's bad. I feel like, though, the answer is that, okay, let, you know, we've got a plea agreement, right? Yep. And he knowingly and willingly entered into this plea agreement under the advice of counsel. And I don't think at the time that it occurred to anybody that, like, this could be a result of that. I don't think that they went into it thinking that. 
they had these plaintiffs in the civil action sort of whispering in their ear, right? Like, we want this guy held, right? Yeah. You don't hear a whole lot. I mean, people get issued failure to appears, right? Most of the time, it's because you failed to appear for your criminal court date, right? Correct. It is extraordinarily rare to be issued a bench warrant for a failure to appear on a civil case. Uh, yes. It, it, well, I, you know, I will say that like bench warrants actually do happen. The rare part is being held for any length of time like this. Like it's extraordinary to see somebody that gets a year for contempt or a year and a half. Okay. But there's two different things happening here. Right. He was issued, he was charged with criminal failure to appear. Correct. That's what he was picked up on by the marshals, okay? It is very, very rare. I mean, if you don't show up for your criminal court date, yeah, they'll issue a bench warrant for you. But to to not show up for a civil case, usually that's not what happens. You're you're, you're 100% correct. You're right. I wasn't, like, it occasionally get into the mix of, like, domestic violence protective orders and and, uh, child support, then, yes, this is— if we count all of that out, an order could go out for that. But you're right. It is rare. But even with criminal failure to appear, which the most common types of criminal failure to appear occur at the infraction and misdemeanor level, they do happen at the felony level, federal, state, local. Yes. But he failed to appear for a civil case. Correct. But most of the times the punishment for failure to appear is show up. Now, we're having your hearing right now, and you end up having to go through whatever it was you failed to appear for. Right. And that's the end of it. You get the punishment for whatever that thing was. A two-year sentence for failure to appear is astronomical. Um, This is a travesty. And unfortunately, because of the way this has gone, Meg has put in, I would say you probably have put in 200 hours on this. I have no idea. Way too much. Um, And we don't have an ending for you. No, I was hoping. I really thought for sure that I thought something would come out, right? Um, And I should say, at this point where it was left off, like going into the summer of 2023 with um, Tommy Thompson having filed a motion like, please let me out of jail. And then he finally got representation the judge was like, look, you need to refile this and do it correctly. Um, and this is the judge that's like holding him in contempt. Yeah. And then you've got the United States, regardless of the fact that this is civil contempt, the United States attorneys are still, they are the representing the country, the state side of it, right? Yeah. Okay. And so at this point, Even the United States attorney is saying, like, I think it's time we should let him out. Yeah, he's saying he's exactly like with Chadwick. He's saying, I think this has lost its coercive effect. Now, one of the strange things, and again, I'm tell this is like such a big deal. And it doesn't seem to me like anybody's picking up on it. It is such a big deal that you've got 
sort of these random parties that are part of the civil action that he was he didn't show up to court for it, so he was issued that failure to appear. And they're and chiming in with the briefs. They are they are filing briefs opposed to in favor of whatever with regard to him being held in the civil contempt, which is the product of a criminal plea agreement. Okay. And I can't emphasize this enough. I I don't know if I'm just not saying the right words or what, but when you get into a position where you're leveraging your criminal adjudication and you're using it in such a way to coerce you to do something in a civil trial. We have entered into territory that is not meant to be explored. Yeah, we haven't even got to the appellate phase of what's going to happen here because we can't get through the first part of it. Well, you know that there is no appeal to this. He took a plea agreement. Right, but I'm saying in terms of, okay, there's going to be a ruling. That ruling can be appealed. But it that doesn't mean it will affect the criminal case. I'm just talking about whatever the judge says next, in theory, can be appealed to the circuit. It can be, yes. And I honestly think that at the it, so what they would do is they would ha, it has to be it would have to bring up a constitutional question. It, in my opinion. And it would be based on the fact that he's being held. His, he is being deprived of liberty for eight years now. Right? Is it eight years? Uh, it was no, eight years in October, January. No, October. He went in. January yeah. 15th, he got arrested in 2015. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. We're going on nine years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll be nine years, January 15th, because he was held the whole time and then sentenced. Okay. In eight, and he yeah. didn't get. Uh, he wasn't out on bail or anything? Nope. Okay. Well, I guess since he failed to appear and hopped the state. They put the plea, to, the plea agreement together in like two months, so it was quick. But what was he – okay, but hold on. Let's take a step back again. You know, we don't have debtor's prison here in the United States. Oh, I know. I know. Okay, so what was he being held for? He Failing to appear on civil for, contempt. He was being held on a criminal failure to appear charge in a civil litigation. It's not right. It's, <laughs> this is it's the equivalent of saying we're going to put you in jail until you pay money to these people that have sued you civilly. It's, it's like debtor's prison, okay? And we don't have that here in the United States anymore, okay? And it's crossing a line. And I realize that there's, you know, the line is in sand and it's blowing around and people are saying this, that, and the other that like, oh, it's okay. And I've really worked my way through this entire case and it's really not okay, it and is not. What he what he did as far as not paying back his investors 
certainly there is um, action for that. Okay. Legal action. Holding him in jail for contempt based on a plea arrangement he made because the judge was essentially like he was nudged to make it seem serious, right? Which, I mean, he didn't just make it seem serious. He made it serious, right? (laughs) I mean, he's, he's sat in jail for eight years now, going on nine years. I think Tommy Thompson has slowly lost what was left of his mind while he's been in jail. Well, I I just want to say this to that. Okay. The judge was nudged to make this seem serious and did make it serious. And people are going to say this, so I'm putting it out there now. Yes. Tommy Thompson assisted in making this mess. But here's the thing. That's the whole reason that you go to court and have a judge so that somebody else can do the thinking for you. This should not have happened. No, this should not have happened. And it definitely should not happen again. Um, I don't know how the outcome of this is going to go. I have, I don't know how much more you have on. I mean, I would talk about this case for literally 10 more hours. Tons of information. But honestly, the bottom line of all of it was he's done nothing wrong except have a dream that was essentially thrown back in his face and it scared him. Yeah, like this this whole thing, though, it should scare everybody. And I agree with you. Tommy was scared with how all this went down. He froze up and this went crazy. But this case should scare everyone because it represents the fact that our justice system and our civil system and criminal system coming together can fail entirely. Right. And it's the players involved that have done it. There is no until there's a ruling, there is no recourse. You cannot uh, accept I, I do think a defense attorney could go in and um, withdraw the plea. Yeah. So, okay. So I actually wrote Tommy a letter as a journalist. And I just said, hey, if you want to talk, and I gave him some of my information. I think he's been trying to call me, collect, and running into some problems with that because of how their phone systems are set up at FCI Milan where he's being held. But in that letter, I wrote, you know, I'd like to ask you some questions about your case, starting with, have any of your attorneys suggested to you what would happen if you were to withdraw your guilty plea from the 2000, April 2015 hearing? Because that was the first thing I wanted to know, because that really should solve a lot of this for the judge to go, you know what, That in hindsight, that made no sense. It really shouldn't have been a condition, and I don't think anybody like especially not like his defense counsel at the time, I, I don't feel like they were thinking it all the way through. Yeah. And I've, I've reached out to everybody surrounding this case. I've reached out to a lot of the lawyers that have been attached. What's interesting about the lawyers here, and this is not a slight on lawyers. You've got a mix of like all kinds of lawyers have represented Tommy. There's former prosecutors, criminal defense people, some really good estate attorneys. There's a lot of people that have been in this mix where he's trying to find somebody to represent him, decides he doesn't trust him and he kicks him. But they're all like, and I'm saying this in the politest way I can, they were all probably in their prime when Tommy found the goal. (laughs) This most recent guy that came in for the hearing, uh, this last one, it was wild. 
he was not even sure what was happening. You know, he previously represented him. I know. And I realized it was because he had represented him before that he was back in this mix. Basically, at through all the pro se motions, the judge said, you have got to get a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I don't have a lot to, to wrap up this case because it's not over. Tommy's in jail. And uh, as far as I can see, he'll be in jail for the holiday season. Right. And so I'd like to swing this all the way back around. And we, because I feel like the dots should be connected, don't you think? Oh, yeah. So we started with essentially the gold rush and we went through what happened with that. And part of the economic development that was taking place during that time period led to a whole bunch of gold being on a ship that went from California to Panama and then Panama on its way up to New York, it sank 150 miles off the coast of the Carolinas, 8,000 feet down with that gold on it. And along came Tommy Thompson in the eighties looking to explore under the sea and he successfully found it and retrieved whatever amount he retrieved. We have no idea. Several tons. And he now having done that and gone through, you know, what happened uh, being sued by 39 insurance companies, then uh, 10 years, 15 years later, being sued by his his own investors, disappearing, not, and then hiding from the process, having warrants issued for his arrest on failure to appear charges, pleading guilty to those criminal charges with a stipulation in the plea agreement that he would do two years and he would assist in the civil case that he had been, he had failed to appear for, right? He is now sitting in jail having not committed a crime. Yeah. And look, there's nothing else I can add to that. That is the perfect bow on all of this. I will say, I looked, we were covering like, Texas cases last year, and I came across where one of the ingots sold, before I even knew about this, in January 2022, uh, one of the ingots sold for around $2.2 million. And that's from, you know, the Central America uh, recovered gold ingots. National Geographic and BBC Studios, they have developed and apparently finished a three-part limited series called Lost Gold that's going to tell this story. Um, it should be out sometime, I think, in like right before the summer, like April or May. Uh, and I say that because I noticed that Gary Kinder has doing a 20th anniversary edition of his book, which was one of the main sources here, the, the ship of gold in the deep blue sea. And that was going to be coming out by Grove Atlantic books in May. So I assume that shortly thereafter, you'll see the national geographic story. Uh, the idea was that, uh, uh, Algernon, uh, Marbley was going to rule on this sometime this summer or early fall, but that time is long past. 
Um, and, you know, Tommy is sort of in charge of his freedom, if you look at it one way, but also I'm not sure he's capable of doing what they want. And I say that from the perspective of just generally. I'm not saying there's any specific medical reason or mental health problem or memory problem or whatever. It could just be that he just doesn't want to do it. But ultimately, you know, Tommy's still in jail this holiday season. He's uh, in jail for Thanksgiving. And my idea here is I'm going to try and do a follow-up episode. And that follow-up episode would be to talk to to Gary when his uh, book comes out and when that series comes out. Um, And we may tie this into another – do you read a lot about shipwrecks and stuff? Um, I don't really know what a lot is. Uh, I've certainly read more about them recently. Well, I noticed, um, you shared this with me. Um, there's a New Zealand Herald article about, um, this, I think it's a Spanish galleon, right? The San Jose. Is that right? Yes. Well, yeah, it's so it, it is New Zealand reporting it, but it's talking about Colombia um, doing the expedition. So, yeah, there may be a reason for us to go back and look at the Galleon San Jose, which I think sank in 1708. That was um, during a uh, battle with the British. But- right. And but that supposedly had a, a, you know, it was in the billions um, and. What's interesting about that is I feel like anybody that had read what happened with Tommy Thompson, even just headline skimming, I think that they would have gotten a different career. <laughs> I would tend to agree with that. But isn't that the one that's rumored to have $33 billion or something like that? Is that the number they put it's on a it? a lot of money. I, I don't know what the number is. I'm so confused. Like, I really want to quantify because, you know, you said seven, it sank in the 1700s. And so, like, is it billions of dollars now? Was it, There's no way it was billions of dollars then, right? No, it's and I think all this gold is cursed anyways. And, you know, it it would have, an, it would have you know, an effect on the economy, sort of, but not the same it would as it would have back then, right? Yeah. Because back then, when the gold was gone, like, it was literally gone, right? Yeah. We were very, we were right on the edges of where, you know, gold actually mattered um, to keep the economy moving. But it, I am curious to know also um, with Tommy's case, what the ultimate, you know, because the ship has been put in receivership, right? Yeah, I so I. I don't think there's an answer to that yet. There it's are some done. other right. You're talking about supporting the rest of the salvage. Well, what happened was Tommy was granted that 92.8 percent of uh, the insured gold and 100 percent of the uninsured gold with regard to um, the wreckage of the ship. Right. Right. And regardless of the fact that he owes investors money and everything. Um, up to a point, like he had transferred the ownership from one company to another, but it was still just his company with a different name. Right. Right. I don't know how many times that happened. I wasn't completely following what was going on there. Um, but he, 
up to a certain point, he still earned, once the judge awarded that to him and all the appeals were exhausted, he still ended up with most of it, right? Yeah. And so that salver title didn't go away and the ship was is still there. And so at some point um, during, I, I think, the 2005 civil suit, I believe that the court ordered um, – that whole situation to go into a receivership. And what that did was it said, Tommy, you're not taking care of your business and we need to uh, get this set up. So, you know, we could be making money for the investors to be paid back and we could, you know, they basically put it into like sort of a third party's hands. Yeah. And, you know, they, the court looks after it and it carries on because, you know, just because one person sort of uh, dropped the ball, it keeps some of the other balls up in the air. But I looked and it's had a filing as recently as like, I think this month. And yeah. it's basically just talking about plans that are being made. It did say something. It was just a status report. It's not that interesting. But I think that, you know, there are plans that will see it wrapped up, which to me means whatever was going to be recovered has been recovered and we're going to be done with this, right? Yeah. Um, but that it still, I think, was off into 24. So, you know, who knows? But um, I – so I have trouble – really um wondering how much you know how much like the billions of dollars on the um the case that Columbia is going to go after possibly and then in this case like how much money did he really get and it, it's all so fascinating to me right? well I started with the gold rush because I felt like I hate to say it this way but doesn't all this feel like weird karma not I mean what what do you mean like messing with gold as much as it once drove the economy and as valuable as it is it really doesn't seem to be worth the hassle um i would have to agree with you on that um i would not i wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole i i really wouldn't and you know there are th- it when I was reading Tommy's case, it's like there's this lure. Yeah. And it's like, like yes. Even one of like the original attorneys that was like working on the case, um, he something happened and he wasn't on the case anymore. And all of a sudden he was filing to be included in like he should get some of the uh spoils and i thought that's so crazy and it was almost like you know this guy had lost his mind <laughs> cuz he thought the work he had done on the case like as an attorney for the the salvers right he was like oh well that that makes me entitled to some of the uh the recovery. And I was like, why would that guy think that? But it's almost like it puts you under a spell or something. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, so there's a lot more scientific stuff that I cut out about this. And I cannot say enough about 
uh, Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea by Gary Kender. If you want to read more about this and like get drawn into that spell yourself, that's a great read. You can find that on Amazon, and especially with the new one coming out, that would be a good read. Um, I do want to cite really well um, – <laughs> there's a lot of Columbus uh, Dispatch and Columbus Monthly – tidbits that we pulled from in here and some of those guys are actually part of the lawsuits so i want to cite that we definitely have used them along the way um but specifically i wanted to mention chris ryan uh he wrote for uh stone and gherkin pa he wrote an article in january 2016 for the ocean and coastal law journal in volume 21 article 10 called nothing gold can stay how tommy thompson lost his golden ticket and gained decades of legal legal turmoil and it's a fascinating read. Um, I'm pointing all that out just so like I've covered all the sources for this. And I know there's going to be new sources coming up. And I'm sure someone will come on YouTube to tell me that I'm copying National Geographic in 2024. So I wanted to make sure that I got that cited here. Uh, but I also want to say like a huge thank you to you because of uh, – there were parts of this I would not have understood if you hadn't gone through and sort of carefully – uh, help me maneuver the maritime portion of this because I think that's where I think that's where journalists get lost in this case. Um, it literally has tens of thousands of pages of documents, and it has a lot. And I think that it's sort of par for the course. Where you're like, oh, this happened. A judge is involved. Somebody's in jail. It doesn't immediately register, like what it means like the underlying elements of this particular case mean. Yeah, I don't. And I, and, and I'm worried that with, I think the lost gold series will be popular. I think it will feel a little like an adventure and I think it's hitting, uh, if I'm understanding the release schedule and it hits in early next year, it's going to be at a good time where people want to go and watch it. I'm worried that what will be lost on people is that there is a huge legal problem in this case. Right. And that problem is that someone is sitting in jail and he didn't commit a crime. Right. And that's and, that's what I want people to take away from this series that we're doing that's going to conclude right at Thanksgiving 2023 is exactly what you just said. Someone has been sitting in jail and he didn't commit a crime and he has been there for almost nine years. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CrimeXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. 
Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. S. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach, I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. 
Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We're part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma- major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today.